from WCFM and HD1 Columbia, I'm Justin Walsh. And I'm Lydia Blackstone. This is Politically Inclined from WUSC News. Coming up on this week's show, President Trump and former Vice President Biden faced off for their final time before Election Day on Thursday. The debate was relatively tamer than the first one with the new rules in place to limit interruptions. We discuss the substance of the debate with USC political science professor Douglas Thompson. Then Democrats have made health care their primary issue this election cycle, and with Amy Coney Barrett poised to be appointed to the Supreme Court tonight, they are saying that the Affordable Care Act is in question. We discuss the possible ramifications of what could come next for public health professor Suda Gaikasar. All that and more coming up on this week's episode of Politically Inclined. The news is first. Live from WUSC News, I'm Morjalis. In South Carolina today, DHEC announced another day of high COVID-19 numbers, the state adding 755 new cases to its total, along with 20 confirmed deaths. This coming after a spike yesterday when over 1,200 new cases were announced, the highest number in over a month. Across the country, other states are seeing coronavirus spikes as well. This week, the U.S. averaged nearly 70,000 new COVID-19 cases a day, breaking the previous record set in July. Health experts are warning people to continue following social distancing guidelines and brace for a third wave of infection that could be amplified by the holiday season. At USC, case numbers have remained steady, although there's been a slight uptick since last week. The university is reporting 58 active cases of COVID-19 on campus. University officials are continuing their incentivized testing program, however, in hopes of getting more students to participate in saliva testing. The university is also working to expand this program to other schools around the state. WSC's Chelsea Bynes has more. The University of South Carolina is now expanding the saliva-based COVID-19 testing statewide. The expansion will offer testing to other colleges and universities in the state of South Carolina. This expansion comes after a $16.7 million investment from the state of South Carolina. The university was the first to offer saliva-based COVID testing to students, faculty, and staff. USC will now increase their testing supplies, testing capacity, and reduce the turnaround time for results. WSC Chelsea Bonds reports. The Senate is expected to confirm Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court tonight, ending a month-long political battle in Congress. Barrett will be sworn in by Justice Clarence Thomas after the confirmation vote and will begin her duties on the Supreme Court immediately. Democrats have been pushing to hold off the vote until after the general election, saying that voters should have a say in who sits on the court. Republicans, however, have taken quick action to confirm Barrett, even after blocking the vote of Obama's appointee Merrick Garland in 2016. The Gamecocks faced off against LSU this past weekend, coming off a big win against the Auburn Tigers. WSC's Kieran Alston has the details. This weekend, the South Carolina Gamecocks lost to the LSU Tigers 52-24 in Louisiana after LSU started true freshman T.J. Finley. The lone bright spot in the Gamecocks' loss was running back Kevin Harris averaging 10.6 yards per carry and ending his day with two touchdowns. Next week, the Gamecocks can regroup with the bye week. With WSC News, I'm Cron Alston. Richland One schools began phase two of their reopening plan today. Kindergarten through second graders were allowed to return to in-person instruction for the first time after DEC reduced Richland County's COVID-19 risk rating to low. Other school-aged children will return in person next week. With eight days before the presidential election, early voting records have been shattered across the country. Democrats are showing an early lead, but as WSC's Abigail Brandon reports, that may not last very long. 
With eight days till the presidential election, 2020 early voting has already surpassed all early voting in the 2016 election. In 2016, only 137 million votes were cast. This year, nearly 62 million people have already voted, and that's 45% of total votes cast in 2016. This is partially due to early and absentee voting being made easier due to coronavirus precautions. The majority of the votes have been cast by registered Democrats, but with early in-person voting now being an option, Republicans are closing the gap. States with the highest populations, like California, Florida, and Texas, have unsurprisingly seen the highest turnouts. Remember that Election Day is Tuesday, November 3rd. With WUSC News, I'm Abigail Brandon. Stocks fell sharply today following soaring coronavirus cases. The Dow down 650 points today, the Nasdaq down 189 points, and the S&P 500 falling 64 points. It's currently 73 degrees outside, mostly clear, with a low of 57 tonight. Tomorrow, the high is 81 degrees with a low of 61. I'm more jealous, and this is WUSC News. It's 6.09. A social distancing tip. Keeping your distance from others is important in slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are some fun things to do alone. Read a book, take a walk, unpack your suitcase from that trip you took last September, paint a self-portrait, catch up on a TV series, do a puzzle. Remember, we should all stay home to lower the risk for everyone. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. You're listening to Politically Inclined from WSC News. I'm Justin Walsh. The second presidential debate proved to be a lot calmer than the first one, with a new rule in place that muted the candidates' microphones during the first two minutes of the other's preliminary answer to each question. The media praised President Trump for striking a new tone in this debate by being more composed and less disruptive than during the first debate, and commended Biden for laying out his platform more efficiently this time around without interruptions. However, did either candidate change voters' mind? Here, let's discuss... Uh, the debate is political is WSC political correspondent Ward Jalas. Ward, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Always. Okay. So first off, as a voter yourself, how would you compare this debate to the first one in terms of its control? Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that has definitely been discussed across all media outlets after this debate is just how radically different this one was from the first one. Uh, during the first one, you know, you see a lot of both of the candidates screaming at each other um, and talking over each other and whatnot. But this one was notably uh, more toned down, uh, especially from the president who, during the first debate, interrupted uh, former Vice President Joe Biden multiple different times. You could tell that he really um, toned it down this time. And it wouldn't surprise me if some of his closest advisors uh, did this following some polling boost for Biden. Yeah, I know many vo- many viewers were definitely expecting a more heated like back and forth between the two, but it was nice that it was more subdued. So on to the first topic. Um, the first one, without fail, brought up to the two candidates was the coronavirus. So um, viewers are saying that President Trump offered another vague response to his handling of the virus. He says, we're rounding the corner and it's beginning to go away, even though those cases are spiking. Do you think voters feel more reassured about the virus after hearing what both candidates had to say or the opposite? You know, I really think it depends on who you talk to. I know a lot of Republicans um, are taking a lot of what the president is saying pretty seriously. Uh, the, you know, for clarification, the coronavirus pandemic is not over. Public health experts are repeatedly uh, bringing to the table multiple different, you know, different alarming statistics. This week, the U.S. saw an average of over 68,000 new coronavirus cases every single day. That's 
the highest since the pandemic began. Uh, a lot of public health experts saying we're entering a third wave right now. So I think, um, you know, the president, the president has repeatedly downplayed the pandemic. He has gone on interviews with multiple journalists saying that he's downplayed the pandemic. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that's really hurting him in this election process, here we are eight days out from the election, is, is his handling of the pandemic right now. Many people say that he'd be facing an almost an almost sure re-election if it weren't for the pandemic and the economic downturn following it. So right now the president is, you know, trying to grasp onto anything that he can in order to maybe swing some voters uh, to his side because, uh, let, let's be honest right now, the president's losing. Absolutely. I know it's definitely a sensitive subject for most. And speaking of sensitive subjects, the second, um, the probably the second most heated topic of the debate was the discussion of race. A bold claim made by Donald Trump was, I'm the least racist person in this room. And the public had a lot to say about this. How do you think the discussion of race was handled between the two candidates? You know, I think that one of the perhaps the best questions of the night was the question by Kristen Welker, who is a woman of color, uh, on race. Um, she asked the two candidates about the talk, which many African-American parents have to have with their children regarding uh, police discrimination and police brutality. Um, it was probably one of the best moments for Biden uh, that night. He tackled it head on. It was, the, like I said, the first time that that question had been brought up at any debate um, and really addressed the situation pretty well. Uh, for the president, however, it wasn't his best moment of the night. You know, he, you know, claimed that he was the least racist person in the room. And like I said before, the moderator was a woman of color. So uh, many people, you know, thought that it, his response was comical, if anything. Uh, and another thing about that, too, he also claimed that he had done more for black people than any president since possibly Lincoln, is what he said, um, which was another thing that blew up on social media. Many people saying that the whole interaction was completely ridiculous. Absolutely. Definitely a heated discussion there. Um, so moving on to some of Biden's assertion in the debate, Vice President Biden finally made a more direct assertion about his plan for the environment. He claimed that he would begin to transition away from the oil industry, and this sparked a big discussion between the two candidates. Do you think that the plan he has is realistic? And being that the oil industry is so prominent in many states, do you think that he got more people on his side with that claim or got more to drift away from him? I think this was probably uh, one of Joe Biden's worst parts of the debate. It was probably his one of his weaker answers because uh, a lot of people know that Joe Biden hasn't exactly given uh, an, an, ex an especially straightforward response on fracking. Uh, he said, like you said previously in another debate, that uh, he was against fracking or at least highly suggested that he was going to get rid of it altogether. Um, l later on in the debate from this past week, he said that he had never said that. He said that he had only uh, said that there'd be no more fracking on federal lands, which a lot of people see as going back on something he had already said. Uh, let me, you know, emphasize this, though. The president did not hesitate to use this to his advantage. He called out for, you know, voters in Oklahoma, Texas, Pennsylvania. Um, he said, remember this, um, because the oil industry is so big in those states. And of course, at least for a couple of them, these are swing states in this election and could determine who the next president is. Uh, so it was definitely a, it was definitely a weaker moment for Biden. Absolutely. And I know you kind of answered my first question there, but 
based off his kind of back and forth on the concept of fracking and, and like, how it's affecting the whole race itself, do you think that this indecisiveness, inability to give, a, like, a specific answer to this question is hurting him in terms of, like, if voters can trust him, if they know what he's going to do or what he's not going to do? Look, like I said, the the vice president or the former vice president is clearly winning right now. He's up nine points across many different polls. That doesn't necessarily mean anything in regards to the presidential election. Um, most of the tight races are in these key swing states that historically every year decide the election. Uh, you know, this is an election that Biden could be up 15 points and still possibly lose, specifically because the 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 way that American politics work right now is that only a few key states determine the election. And right now, it's very close. Will this make any difference, his stance on fracking? Probably not. Most voters have made up their mind already. Over 60 million people have already voted. Um, and again, this is just one issue that Joe Biden has gone back and forth on. Uh, I, I think it would be hypocritical, to say the least, for voters to take one issue or undecided voters, in quotes, um, for voters to take one issue that Joe Biden went back on and decide to vote for Trump after Donald Trump also has, you know, lied on multiple occasions and gone back and forth on his his fair share of issues. I don't think this will be one defining issue. Yes, very true. And my last question to you. So do you think there is anything or any specific part of this final debate that could have changed any undecided voters' minds or convinced anyone of the final decision? I know you said a large majority of people have already voted, but was there anything about this <laughs> debate that could have swayed anything? I think I think one of the things that uh, is very funny right now is um, that's all over social media is this myth, you know, quote unquote, of undecided voters. You know, do you know an undecided voter? Uh, I don't know. It may just be because we live in South Carolina. Um, but, you know, a lot of people calling undecided voters unicorns is one thing, too. Uh, they're very rare. And so one of these things, you know, this final debate in the long run probably didn't have a whole lot of influence on who will win the election. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us, Ward. Really appreciate it. Of course, as always. All right. That was WSC political correspondent Ward Jollis. We will be right back. As a guy with his own catchphrase, I appreciate that after 75 years, Smokey's only said, Only you can prevent wildfires. But I'm filling in because there's a lot more to report. Like when it's dry or windy. Be careful burning yard waste, because wildfires can even start in your neck of the woods. Go to SmokeyBear.com to learn more about wildfire prevention. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Welcome back. Amy Coney Barrett is expected to be confirmed to the Supreme Court tonight, which has made the Democratic 
party extremely concerned about the future of the Affordable Care Act. Barrett's nomination will make the court a 6-3 to three conservative leaning on the court, which has made many concerned about November 10th, when the Supreme Court will hear the arguments in a case that could undo the ACA. If the ACA is indeed overturned, what comes next for the health care in our country and what possible effects will such a decision have on the civilians in the middle of a current pandemic? Here with me to discuss is public health professor Suda Kasayasar. How are you doing tonight? Very good. Fine. Thank you. Great to have you on. First off, Amy Coney Barrett hasn't shared specifically how she's going to vote on these two, this big case of the ACA yet. Um, do you think the Democratic Party maybe is jumping to the conclusion of how she is going to vote? Or do you think that it's very valid to have that concern now? I think their concerns are founded in a previous, in some previous documentation that uh, uh, Judge Barrett has uh, put in writing and published regarding her reservations about the ACA and indications that she thinks it is unconstitutional. I think I l heard that probably on the news that in and on CNN. I mean, I'm not talking of you know some of the bubble news, but you know, mainstream um, you, news, where it appears that she has clearly indicated in writing her opinion on the ACA. So while she does not indicate anything at this time during confirmation hearings, the fact that she had that indicates that she has a prior preference with regard to the ACA, and that is what is making them concerned. The real question here is, is, is the AC, a, ACA, excuse me on that, um, unconstitutional? Do you believe that it's unconstitutional? I, well, for one thing, I can say that healthcare is something that has to be evaluated in light of its indivisibility from the very existence of an individual an extreme status of losing health is death. So the peril of not having healthcare at the right time indicates it is a sentence for death. So we have to consider whether as a society, we are willing to state that those who do not have the ability to pay for healthcare uh, whether it is fine for them to go ahead and die. And as you know, there have been, there are uh, laws regarding, um, you know, emergency medical care of uh, people who are in life-threatening situations that is called the MTALA. Under MTALA, no individual can be allowed to go away or turned away, be turned away from a hospital or emergency room uh, regardless of ability to pay, they have to be provided stabilizing care. An implicit assumption of this is, of this law already, is that you cannot let people die just for lack of uh, health care in an emergent situation. Now, the Affordable Care Act or proactive measures to guarantee everyone a basic level of health care is an extension of the implicit assumption of the EMTALA. So it is very difficult to imagine that 
people would say that EMTALA is not unconstitutional, but this is unconstitutional. Yes, and so... And needless to say, um, in my view, the Constitution was written at a time when none of these were even an option. People did not have ways to save people. Health was basically, and death was basically a matter of destiny. Disease was a matter of destiny, and where disease took you was a matter of destiny. That is no longer the case now. We have interventions available. We are able to save lives. And in light of, I'm not a lawyer at all, but I, in light of the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, I would say that making arrangements for everyone to contribute to the saving of their life at a time when it is necessary or at a time when, when they are at risk of losing life cannot be considered unconstitutional, in my view. Again, that's a very common sense view. I'm not a lawyer. I was trained as a physician and I have, uh, you know, my work is in the area of health services policy and management. Yes. And being a public health expert definitely brings an interesting perspective to this. But I do want to talk about the political um, things that are happening right now is that the Trump administration wants to repeal and replace Obamacare, which is the ACA. And Biden said in the last debate that he wants to rework it and call it Biden care. Which of these candidates do you think has a stronger stance to just the general American who needs health care and needs it affordably? Clearly, the ACA has already made very significant, <coughs> excuse me, inroads into improving the prospects of getting health for uh, for low-income Americans. And given that it has already made very significant inroads before the ACA, about 16% of the American population was uninsured at any given point of time. With the ACA, that dropped down to 10%, 10 to 11%. And that happened because the, the individual mandate combined with the various combinations of Medicaid expansion and so on, which were incorporated, helped to expand the number of people who uh, got access. And as a result, one would say that building upon the existing ACA, which itself came about because the American system is an incremental system. You cannot go and just sweep off everything off the table, which includes the private health insurance companies, all these different slices of the population that we have and have all having their own different health insurance plans. You just can't sweep it off the table. And that is how the ACA came to be a patchwork system. And through that patchwork, some people fell through the cracks, and that is your uh, 10% of the population. Yeah, just gonna. So, building on it, I don't care whether it is called Biden Care or what it is called, but building upward, it makes more sense than trying to dismantle something, especially in light of the fact that a very important pillar of the ACA, which was the individual mandate, was uh, ripped off in a previous um, you know, filing and in a previous court case uh, at the level of the Supreme Court. So given that it has been already uh, emasculated a significant, to a significant degree, um, just trying to say that we are going to uh, we, uh, repeal and then 
uh, you know, institute a new healthcare plan. Um, just to it, cut it you off there, is that, do water. you think do you think that this will happen? Uh, my last question for you really is: Do you think that um, Amy Coney Barrett? She's really said that she just wants to abide by the Constitution. She's not there to make policy, and she's made that very sure in her confirmation hearings. And do you think that you know in in the end round she's just going to interpret the Constitution, or you think that maybe her policy is going to kind of come in in a little bit of a way, and she's going to vote to repeal? That's my last question for you. Now, interpreting the Constitution, I think, in my view, given that it was um, written and, you know, in a in an entirely different period and time of uh, American history, and a whole, you know, eon has passed by in the last 200 years in terms of where we are as human beings and our ability to control our destiny, and so interpretation just being rigid to the point of uh, anchoring ourselves to the 18th century does not make any sense. So the interpretation has to be dynamic and has to be meaningful. The Constitution is, I, in my view, is meant to be a living document that is useful for living people. It should not be an instrument written by people who are now dead and become an instrument of uh, oppression and, uh, and you know, causing suffering for the living people of today. I'm going to have to cut you off there, but thank you so much for that perspective. We really appreciate it. That was public health professor Sudhika Syasar, and that's all for Politically Inclined this week. Keep checking with us on Mondays at 6 for more on what's going on in politics. Politically Inclined is a production by WSC News and is produced by Stephanie Justice and Ward Jollis. The outreach coordinator for Politically Inclined is Julie Crosby, and the music for Politically Inclined is called Fluffy by Smith the Mister. You can go find other news shows and WSC News podcast at Garnet Media Group. From WUSC News in Columbia, I'm Lydia Blackstone. And I'm Justin Walsh. This is Politically Inclined, and we'll see you next week.